Here is Jeremiah the prophet in prison by his own people as his people, his nation, is surrounded by an enemy pagan king and he is being persecuted as a prophet of God. They're trying to shut the mouth of the prophet. They don't want to hear the truth which would provide the remedy which would be repentant. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. I want you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah chapter 32, if you haven't done so already. There have been many Old Testament texts that have been on my mind and my heart, especially in the past year or so, as we have seen so many globally changing sort of events occur. Even in our own country, we've seen the political landscape change drastically. We've seen our country move further and further away from its Christian morals, its Christian foundation. We have witnessed the church, not just in the last 10 years, but really in the last 30 or 40 years, move far, far, far to the left on a whole range of different issues. We have seen preachers, pastors, elders compromise left and right. We have seen sin at very public levels, even with Famous Christian ministers falling from the ministry, falling from grace. We have seen all that has gone on with the quote-unquote pandemic. We have seen the church divided even on this issue between really conservative Christians who refused to shut their churches down and were threatened by civil magistrates. We've seen a lot just in the past year. That has led me on a quest to search out the Word of God, particularly the Old Testament, and to try to understand what God's people did in periods of rebellion. What did God's people do in periods of anxiety, periods of stress, periods of uncertainty? How did they respond? Were there any faithful people among the people of God when it seemed a whole nation was going astray and God's people were worshiping false gods? What were the prophets like during these periods of rebellion? What did God's word say to God's people during these periods of rebellion? And of course, when you read throughout the Old Testament, you see that there were many words of judgment upon the people of God. We could say the visible church of the Old Testament because of their sin. But there were also messages of mercy There were promises of restoration, promises of revival, and that is what we see here in Jeremiah chapter 32. I want to begin by reading verses 36 through 41, and I want you to stand to your feet as we do that. This will be our text this morning, Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 36 through 41. Now hear God's word. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. 
Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. They shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Thus ends the reading of God's blessed word. Please be seated and let's ask him for his help as we look at this text together. Father, we thank you for your word We pray that in the time that we have this morning to worship you through the study of your sacred scriptures, that you might give to us great insight and wisdom into what was going on in Jeremiah's day, that we might understand how we are to respond in a time of uncertainty, in a time of rebellion. Give us a word of hope this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. It is true as we study the Bible that God is both just and true. He is just, and that means that he cannot allow sin to go unpunished. That is why he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world to die for sinners. Salvation is free, but it wasn't free to Christ. He paid for all of the sins of all of his people, all of those who would ever believe in his name. That established... It did not undermine, but it established the justice of God because God punished His only begotten Son in the place of His people. Sin cannot allow to go without being punished. God is just. But God is also true. Another word for that is that He is righteous. He is right. He is faithful to His promises. He is always faithful to his promises. He cannot help but be faithful to his promises. So he is both just, he can't allow sin to go unpunished, and he is righteous. And these two attributes of God are wedded together in the gospel. The righteousness of Christ, the perfection of Christ, the faithfulness of God to save his people, to redeem his people, and the justice of God the punishing of sin in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is also with God the sending of discipline or chastening of his people. And we find that throughout the Bible here in Jeremiah. If you just go with me back to chapter 11 for a moment, beginning in verse 6, the Lord said to me, Jeremiah says, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem. Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I solemnly warned your fathers when I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, warning them persistently, even to this day, saying, Obey my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, that everyone walked in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore I brought upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did not. Again, the Lord said to me, a conspiracy exists among the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words. They have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant 
that I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am bringing disaster upon them that they cannot escape. Though they cry to me, I will not listen to them. Here in Jeremiah's day, the people of God, particularly the southern kingdom, the capital city being Jerusalem, was in rebellion against God. But Israel, the northern kingdom, is mentioned here. They were the broken-off sect of false worship. But even the southern kingdom, the more orthodox house of God, was in rebellion. The most conservative of the visible church at this time was participating in false worship and sin. They were stubborn like their fathers before them. If you go with me to chapter 25, we read about the judgment that was to come because of this, and that is 70 years of captivity. We'll pick up in verse 8 of Jeremiah 25. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. The hissing was a reference to scorn. The mockery of God through the mockery of the nations because of the destruction of God's people. Verse 10, moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones, the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And of course, that's exactly what happened. Jeremiah We refer to him as the weeping prophet. Could you imagine your job being to tell God's people that they needed to repent of their sin, but that, oh, by the way, even if you repent of your sin, it's too late. You're still going to go into captivity. You can't stop the judgment of God. This land that God gave you is going to be taken away from you. You will be slaves again in Babylon, just as you were slaves in Egypt. And God had to deliver, to deliver you. You will go back to slavery. God is just. He cannot allow sin to go unpunished. But he's also true and faithful. And that is where the concept of covenant when you're studying the Bible is so important. This judgment upon Israel, we could call them the Old Testament church, was really a demonstration of the chastisement of God, the discipline of God, because God had promised his people he would deliver them from Egyptian bondage, he would bring them into the promised land, which in fact he did. He made this promise to them, going all the way back to Father Abraham, that God would make a great nation from Father Abraham through his children. This promise would remain of salvation. They would be brought into the promised land, which they were. So any sort of judgment, any sort of chastening will not end in utter and total, complete obliteration of the covenant promises God had made. There was hope. In fact, Christ is mentioned here in Jeremiah. If you turn back with me to Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 5. 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. This is a prophecy of the Messiah, the righteous branch. He shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So when the Messiah comes, there will be this restoration of the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. That's Christ. He is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. This promise is fulfilled in what we call the new covenant. A covenant that Jeremiah prophesies about in Jeremiah 31. We read its New Testament sister passage in Hebrews chapter 8. A new covenant that would be sealed with the blood of Christ. That is this righteous branch. This one who would have an eternal promised land, as we read here in Jeremiah 23, where God would bring from all the countries all of his elect people. They would be one in Christ. He would rule and he would reign over them. He would execute judgment and righteousness. This is his sovereign rule and reign as the now exalted head of the church, mediator of the church, sovereign Lord. We live in that time period of the fulfillment of the prophecy of the new covenant. Jeremiah predicted that. And so when he speaks about this 70 years of captivity, there actually is a message of hope, of returning to the land. There is this promise of a time of restoration. When all of God's people of all time, whether of the house of Israel or the house of Judah, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, all of God's children from Father Abraham, Jew and Gentile, will be brought one together under this king in the promised land. And that is really what Jeremiah 32 is about. In the midst of all of these words of judgment and exile and Babylonian captivity, the weeping prophet Jeremiah has a word of hope for the people of God in the time of their uncertainty and anxiety. Jeremiah promises a time of restoration. In verses 36 through 41. Now it's always difficult when you're preaching a one-off sermon in a book because you've got to give so much introductory material to understand the context. And we're going to get to the verses in a moment, I promise you. But we have to lay the groundwork in chapter 32. What is going on in chapter 32? We'll go back to verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. So this is about a year before Babylon invades Jerusalem, but they've besieged it. Jerusalem is under siege. They are surrounded. It is inevitable that they will be exiled. They are not in control of their future. They do not have the independency that they once had. They do not have King David ruling over them. Uh, They do not have King Solomon ruling over them. Zedekiah. And now Nebuchadnezzar is coming 
to take them into exile. And verse 2 says, Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. For Zedekiah king of Judah had imprisoned him saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord? Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon and he shall capture it. Why, Jeremiah, are you prophesying so negatively? Why are you preaching against your own people? Here is Jeremiah the prophet in prison by his own people as his people, his nation, is surrounded by an enemy pagan king and he is being persecuted as a prophet of God. They're trying to shut the mouth of the prophet. They don't want to hear the truth which would provide the remedy which would be repentance. Jeremiah is imprisoned and he is languishing. Jeremiah said, verse 6, the word of the Lord came to me as he's in prison. Verse 7, behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, buy my field that is at Anatoth for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, buy my field that is at Anatoth in the land of Benjamin for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew, Jeremiah says, that this was the word of the Lord. What exactly is going on here? Well, this man of Anatoth, this relative of Jeremiah, is trying to get out of Dodge. He knows he's going to go into exile, and so he offers his land to Jeremiah. Anatoth was a city in the tribe of Benjamin, given to the Levites. It was about three miles northeast of Jerusalem. Levites were not allowed to exchange land or sell land unless it was with another Levite. Jeremiah would have been a Levite. And we read here in verse 8 about the right of possession and redemption. We read about this in Leviticus chapter 25, that uh, if, if a person was facing financial hardship, a man could sell his property... And the man he sold it to was a a kinsman redeemer. He he was buying that land from him to save it for him until the year of Jubilee. So what it did was the money that was given to the man who was in debt, he now had money even though he was without land and the land was preserved and protected so he could get it back during the time of Jubilee. At which point the land would go back and the land would remain in the family. This was critically important because God had promised them the land of Canaan and that their children would live in this land. And so a father who was in debt, who needed his land redeemed, would go toward a relative who had money so he could buy it back. So we read in verse 9, Behold, And I bought the field at Anatoth from Hanamel, my cousin. I weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, weighed the money on scales. I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions of the open copy. I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Mashiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. 
Verse 14, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase, this open deed, put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. So Jeremiah is buying a parcel of land that he's not going to be able to use. And the reason he did it was in an act of prophetic, dramatic display that someday that land would be used again by the people of God. That though they were going into captivity, God would bring them back, and God did bring them back. Under the days, uh, in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, and they rebuilt the walls, they rebuilt the temple. And we even read in Ezra 2.23 that men from Anatoth returned to Anatoth and settled back there because God fulfills his promises. Interestingly, in the book of Nehemiah, one of the men who seals the covenant was a man by the name of Anatoth, undoubtedly from that area. So Jeremiah buys a parcel of land. He hides the deed in an earthenware vessel as a sign to God's people that they would return to the land, that there was indeed hope for the people of God. And so we come to verses 36 through 41, in which Jeremiah, after this prophetic, dramatic display of buying a parcel of land that is useless at this point, buys it to show his faith in God, and then he tells the people of God that God's promises will not fail. There will be a time of restoration. This time of restoration is God's doing, not man's. Israel has proven to be unfaithful to the covenant, right? They rebel against it over and over and over again. They sin against God over and over and over again. So if there is going to be a time of restoration, God must do it. And what this reminds us of today in picture form is that just as God fulfilled his promises to the house of Judah, they returned after Babylonian captivity, so too will God fulfill his promises to all of the children of Abraham. Jesus said he would build the church and the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. No matter the political turmoil, no matter the lack of faithfulness among Christian leaders, no matter the degree of false worship and false prophecy and perhaps even the persecution of true prophets and preachers, God will remain faithful. Because the new covenant is actually communicating to us that we are in a new creation with a new king and a new land composed of Jews and Gentiles under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Paul would end his letter to the Galatians this way. He says in verse 14 of Galatians 6, Be it far from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. 
And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and listen to this, and upon the Israel of God. There is only one people of God. So while Jeremiah is writing to the Old Testament people of God, the visible church of the Old Testament, because his words are repeated in Hebrews chapter 8 and find their fulfillment in Christ, his words are to us. That there will be a great time of restoration. That peace and mercy would be upon the Israel of God because of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think this passage speaks to us today. We should pray for a time of restoration. We should expect a time of restoration. We should be hopeful and optimistic that in the long term, Christ will win. Christ's rule and reign will be clear for all the world to see. So how do we know when a time of restoration is coming? Well, we listen to what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah points out three things that will reveal a time of restoration. Do we want the church restored? Do we want our nation restored? Do we want our families restored? What will it take? How do we know that a time of restoration is coming? Three things will reveal it. Number one, a time of restoration will always bring with it a time of revival. Number one, a time of revival. Verses 36 and 37 Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. This is Jerusalem, besieged, destruction coming. Verse 37, behold, in spite of this, I will gather, and that is a key word, gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and in my wrath and in great indignation, I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. So you have this language of gathering. God is gathering Israel. He is gathering them from the nations, from the country. Remember the Israel of God, the elect people of God. Those from every tribe and tongue and people group. Those who find their identity in Christ, ultimately, is what this is pointing forward to. Pictured in the fact that God would gather them back into the literal land of Israel at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. He would gather them. This is revival language. Calling them back to Himself. Just as God gathered them out of Egyptian bondage. That was a time of revival, was it not? Turn with me back to Psalm 106. We see the people of God singing praises to God for this. Psalm 106, verse 1, Praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all His praise? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation. 
Remember, Peter says there is one holy nation. There is one chosen people of God. Psalm 106 is just as much about the church today as it was about Israel in the Old Testament. That I may glory with your inheritance, the inheritance promised to Abraham. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We've committed iniquity. We've done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his namesake. That is for God's glory. That he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea. It became dry. He led them through the deep as through a desert. He saved them from the hand of the foe, redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise together because of God's deliverance. Skip down to verse 40. The anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. He abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations so that those who hated them ruled over them. That's what we're reading about in Jeremiah. Their enemies oppressed them. They were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes. They were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant. And relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He calls them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Save us, O Lord our God. Notice this word. Gather us from among the nations. The same word that Jeremiah uses. That we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. From everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say amen. Praise the Lord. All the people, whether Jews or Gentiles, all God's chosen people from everlasting to everlasting because He has gathered us from the nations. And as Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 32, verse 37, I will gather them, God says, from all the countries to which I drove them. I will bring them back to this place. A time of great revival. When you study the Scriptures, that is always the thing that God uses to bless the church and restore the church and restore the people of God and to cause a nation to no longer be under the judgment of God. It comes through revival. It comes through the preaching of the Word of God where the very voice of Christ calls forth to His people. Jesus says, My sheep hear My voice and I know them and they follow after Me. And the elect people of God among believing parents, children, repenting of their sins, placing faith in Christ. Those who have had the privilege of being part of the visible church of God, hearing the gospel, are called back to God, repenting of their sin. Throughout the history of the world, this has been the case. Even among pagan lands, think of Jonah. The revival at Nineveh was rooted in the preaching of Jonah, which led to repentance. Or what about the conversion of 3,000 on the day of Pentecost? That was from the preaching of Peter. Repent and be baptized. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call to himself. And 3,000 repented. 3,000 Israelites, ethnic Jews, who looked to Christ in faith. Preaching of the Word of God must be the focus of the church 
if we want revival. It's the preaching of the word of God that will gather lost souls in. That has always been the theme of Paul's words in his epistles. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. He is the judge. He is the only king. There is only one kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. That's exactly what was going on in Jeremiah's day. They were imprisoning the faithful preachers like Jeremiah, and they were listening to the false prophets who itched their ears. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. (laughs) It's very interesting to me. Timothy was not an evangelist. He was a pastor. And Paul told him, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. In other words, you're not fulfilling your ministry unless you are preaching the gospel and calling people to repentance. And when the pulpits of America are filled with people that appear more to be like talk show hosts than preachers. Is it any wonder that there is no revival? Revival only comes through the preaching of the prophetic word of God, calling sinners to repentance. Pastors are evangelists. Pastors are to remind people of the gospel. And to remind sinners that if they look in faith to Christ, they can be freed from their sin and forgiven of their sin and be given everlasting life. But if they don't repent, judgment is coming. Certainly eternal judgment, but maybe even temporal judgment upon a church and upon a nation that is no longer preaching repentance. Because without the preaching of of the gospel, the preaching of repentance, there can't be any revival. God is a shepherd who gathers his sheep, to use the language of Jeremiah 32, and the way he gathers his sheep is through his voice, through the message of the gospel, the gathering of souls. Here Jeremiah predicts a time of revival that will come through preaching. Time of restoration will come with a time of revival. There's a second thing that will reveal that a time of restoration is coming. Not only will you sense that there is revival in the air, people of God rightly worshiping God, the word of God finding its rightful place in the church, doctrine becoming a point of emphasis, not compromise, Orthodoxy, orthopraxy, being reestablished in the church. The moral law of God being upheld by the people of God. That's a time of revival. That will bring restoration. But secondly, 
A frustration is going to come. It will not only come on the heels of a time of revival, but also a time of renewal. Notice verses 38 and 39. Jeremiah continues, They shall be my people, and I will be their God. I'll give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. So this is not just a gathering of God's people to say, okay, we're going to now do the right thing. We've, we've had a revival. We're now, we're now sitting under the authority of God's word. Our doctrine is right. We've corrected things. No, this is not just the preacher teaching the heads. This is the Spirit of God reaching the hearts. This is spiritual renewal where they will really be God's people, verse 38 says, and He will be their God. He'll give them one heart and one way. They'll fear Him forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. There's the mentioning of children again. This time of restoration will involve a restoration of the family, won't it? It will involve a father being the true head of his home, being a man of God, washing his wife with the water of the word and raising his children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, catechizing his children, preaching the gospel to them, him living a life of fear before God so that his children will follow suit, so their hearts will be renewed. This is a revamping, a reorientation of, of, of the way we live our lives before God and in the fear of God. It's not a one-time act of repentance where we say we've got it wrong, now we need to get it right, but we actually make it right because God gives us a new heart and one way to fear Him for the good of ourselves and the good of our children so that this revival is not is not just um, a one-hit wonder, but it has generational effects. So that everything that we do as Christians ought to be focused toward the future. Everything about Christ's reformed community church ought to be more concerned about the future than the present. Will this church be around in a hundred years? And will the same people that fill these pews be here and their children and their children after their children? You see, that's a true time of restoration. That's true revival. That's true renewal. That's truly the work of God. Not a church that's a one-hit wonder or just ministers to the present generation but one who takes into consideration that God is a big God who works mightily. His power is high and His power is deep and His power is wide to penetrate hearts and souls and the children of those in the present generation. This language, by the way, of verse 38, they shall be my people and I will be their God is very similar language. You remember throughout the Bible this sort of language being used and we can go just to a, a few 
different passages of Scripture. Um, Turn with me to Ruth, to the book of Ruth. Comes after the book of Judges. And you're familiar with this story. Naomi, of course, is widowed. And her two sons are dead along with her husband. So she's left with two daughters-in-laws. And it says that um, in verse 6, she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. She had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she is an Israelite. She had moved to the land of Moab with her husband and had a family and reared a family and now they're all dead. All she has is these two girls she's not related to, these Moabitesses. But she hears that God has visited his people. So she set out from that place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each one of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? I mean, what are you going to do? Wait for me to get remarried? And then I raise these boys and you you marry them? I mean, that's not only strange, but that's not going to happen. You're not going to live that long. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. She loved her. But it says Ruth clung to her. Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Orpah kissed her but went back to her gods. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you, to return from following you, for where you go, I will go, where you lodge, I will lodge, here it is, your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Very similar language to Jeremiah 32, 38, they shall be my people, and I will be their God. As has already been established, there is only one people of God. There is one people of God. So whether Ruth the Moabite becomes part of this people or another Gentile, God is faithful to find his people. God is always faithful to find his people and to bring them to himself. He says in Jeremiah 32, 39, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. Ruth understood that. This is the conversion of Ruth. I don't just want to be with my mother-in-law. I want to be with my mother-in-law's God. I want to be with this people. You see that if a time of restoration is going to occur, it has to be God's true people coming together with a generational focus of what God is doing in the world. Ruth understands that. And of course you know the story. She meets Boaz, right? 
One of the greatest stories in the Bible, Ruth chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. Behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. He said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. This guy was the closest relative to Elimelech. If you're going to buy it, buy it. If you're not going to buy it, then get out of the way because I want to buy it. I want that parcel of land. But if you will not tell me that I may know for there is no one besides you to redeem it and I come after you and he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the land, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Uh Uh-oh. And the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. There's that language, right of redemption again. It was used in Jeremiah 32, the right of redemption. Jeremiah bought the parcel of land from his cousin or uncle, relative. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal, gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malan. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malan, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make... the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in, notice it says, Bethlehem. She was renowned in Bethlehem because Jesus Christ came from the family line of Ruth. Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, was but a picture of Jesus Christ who finds all of his kinsmen all of those that belong to his father, as our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, dying on the cross for the family of God, Jew and Gentile, bringing them in, gathering them in, saving them from their sins. Here in Jeremiah 32, Jeremiah is a kinsman redeemer. He's redeemed this parcel of land to get his relative out of debt, to point forward to and to be a picture that they would return as the people of God to the land and that land would be farmed again to confirm the promises of God. Sounds so simple, doesn't it? All of this talk about redeeming land, redeeming a wife, having an inheritance, having children, having one heart. It sounds antiquated in our culture. People are getting married later and later in life. Family is no longer that important. Morals are no longer that important. People don't even know what marriage is anymore. All that you see in the media in terms of social justice is a direct assault on the family 
And any assault on the family is an assault on the family of God. You cannot be a Christian without understanding the significance and importance of a family and having children that you raise in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. There are single people, and God calls some single people to a life of singleness, and he uses them in an abundant way, but that is the exception that is not the norm. So any attack on the family is an attack on Christianity. A time of renewal will come when families are renewed. A time of restoration will come when there is revival and renewal. Christ is our kinsman redeemer. He is our only hope. So that takes us to the third thing. How do we know a time of restoration is coming? Number one, it will bring with it a time of revival where God gathers his people. A time of renewal where there is true commitment among the people of God and then will come a time of reaffirmation. Verses 40 and 41. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. Lest we think that the sermon this morning is just encouraging you to live a moral life and to have a godly family and the strength of your own flesh, please recognize that it is God who causes this restoration with his everlasting covenant. It is God. God says, I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts. I will rejoice in doing them good. I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart, with all my soul. This is the work of God. There's gonna be a time of restoration. It will be a work of God. It's not something that man can manipulate. Now again, remember back in Jeremiah chapter 31, this passage is quoted. Prophecy of the new covenant. It's quoted in Hebrews 8. Notice that Jeremiah 31, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. There's that language again. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. This is God doing it. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. This is God who does this. And it is God who saves sinners, forgives sin, redeems us from our slavery, our bondage to Satan, our bondage to sin. God is a redeeming God. He redeemed Israel from Egypt. He redeemed Israel from Babylon. 
Throughout the Bible, you have kinsman redeemer who are all ultimately are pointing forward to Christ who is the great redeemer that will bring his people to himself. He will be their God. They will be the, his people. And it will include the children of these believing parents. And it will include not just ethnic Jews, but Gentiles gathered from all four corners of the world north and the south and the east and the west. That's what we read about, isn't it? Before Jesus parted this earth, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is our charge. Time of restoration can only come when the gospel of the new covenant is preached. The forgiveness of sins through Christ. God uses that message of the gospel to call people to himself, to build his church, to redeem his people. I spent some time this past week walking on a lot of land that was owned by my great-grandfather, my great-great-grandfather, my great-great-great-grandfather. I was actually looking for a, the grave of my great-great-great-great-grandfather. And I think I may have found it, but the only problem is it's not marked, so I'll never know. But by process of deduction, you have to look at deeds of land, how it was passed down through cemeteries, how many smiths are in this cemetery? Are these the right smiths? Is this the right land? Did a lot of walking on a lot of land. Several years ago, when my grandfather passed away and then six months later, my grandmother passed away, their little house on 744 uh, Copeland Branch Road, it was up in question where it was gonna go and ended up going to... A, an uncle of mine and a cousin of mine, which is exactly who it should have gone to because they restored the house and that's where we stay when we go to West Virginia, stay in that wonderful house. And through the years, my family had lost much of that land that my great-grandfather had owned, but my cousin and my uncle over the past several years have essentially bought back almost all of that land. And I walked the perimeter of the property. It took four miles to walk the perimeter of the property up and down the mountains over the ridges. That is just an illustration of God's faithfulness. You have the concept of kinsman, redeemer, redeeming land because God promised that this land would be part of the family of God where God's family could raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Where Christ would rule and reign as a king in his kingdom. And we are living that as members of the new covenant. Christ has resurrected. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is ruling and reigning. He has is, he is made a new creation. He has gathered in Jews and Gentiles. And he has promised that he will build his church. But let me just say this. There are times even in the best period of redemptive history in which we live today, where there is great sin and great rebellion, ungodly nations, 
ungodly civil magistrates, ungodly elders of churches. What is it that will bring a time of restoration? Only God can bring it. You can pray for it. You can obey God. You can do the right things. You can take seriously the responsibilities and the duties God has given you as a member of a local church and as a, the head of a household if you're a man, if you're a wife, submitting to your husband, raising your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But it's God himself who has to bring time of restoration. That time of restoration may not come in our lives and we have to be willing to accept that. It didn't come in Jeremiah's life. He bought a parcel of land he himself never used. Are you willing to buy a parcel of land that will be here for succeeding generations? Because at the end of the day, that's what this church is here for. Is it here for you? Sure, it's here for you while you're here, but it's really not for you. It's for the glory of God, for the sake of his kingdom, and for the ultimate time of restoration in which he will have his rule and his reign so pronounced in this world that there will no longer be any sin, sickness, sorrow, or death. The land will remain in the family forever, dwelling safely in the bosom of God our Father. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your holy scriptures. Lord, it is a helpful exercise to look at the Old Testament, to study the Old Testament. I think it is a great error of the church today to only preach from the New Testament and focus on the New Testament. But there's so much rich theology in the Old Testament that helps make sense of the New Testament. Lord, we thank you for your covenantal promises. We thank you for your truth that we can cling to. Just as Ruth clung to Naomi and said, no, my God is going to be the same God as you have. My people will be your people. Lord, help us to cling to Christ. Help us to cling to one another. Help us to pray for a time of restoration. It may come in our lifetime. It may not. But Lord, we are to be faithful no matter what the consequences are, no matter what the results are, you are the one who is in control of revival, not man. You're the one in control of renewal. You have reaffirmed to us your covenant, even as we've read it, this new covenant this morning. We know you are faithful to your promises. Lord, help us to trust you in all that we say, all that we do. We thank you for this church. We thank you for those who come who are so serious-minded about truth and about honoring you. We ask your blessing upon this church. We pray that it would remain for generations to come. For your glory, for your glory alone, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.